0: Second Timothy chapter number two tonight, and um, I, I wanted to share something with you that I have had on my heart and uh, <clears throat> about studying the Bible. We need to know how to study the Bible and uh, this might be just a little bit on the practical side tonight I, and I, I trust that's what the Lord has for us. Second Timothy chapter number two, and we're going to read just two verses and use it as a sort of a skeleton outline to draw some thoughts out about. How we study the Word of God. I fear there's a great many people uh, today in churches that don't know how to study the Bible. And I hope that's not true of of Walridge. and, And I don't believe it is. I believe probably most, if not everybody in this room, has pretty good understanding of how to study the Word of God. Uh, but you know, the, sometimes it's the little things that can be lost on us, and there can be simple things that, if if it's not brought to our attention, uh, we can greatly suffer for not not knowing those things. So it's not lost on me. I know we got a lot of a lot of uh, older Christians in here. People have been studying the Bible, some of you longer than I've been alive, and uh, so you just give me a little grace if some of what I say tonight may be on the elementary side of things. But I do believe it'll be a help to us. Second uh, Timothy chapter number two, verse number fifteen. The word of God says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you and thank you for this opportunity tonight to be in your house. Pray that you'd help us as we approach your word, Lord, to be rightly equipped, uh, rightly able to approach it in a hallowed way. Uh, Lord, in a wise way, uh, we know that one of the chief callings of the life of every believer is to become familiar and acquainted with and in love with your word. And help us, Father, uh, teach us tonight, grow us in your word and in the truth of it. And we'll be sure to thank you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, of course, here in Second Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing to the young preacher, Timothy. And uh, one of the things that he emphasizes is the value and importance Yea, and I would say the responsibility to study the Word of God. Uh, He uses the analogy of a workman. Now, a workman doesn't do the work they do merely for leisure. And that doesn't mean you can't enjoy your work. I hope whatever you do uh, for a paycheck, I hope you enjoy it. But a workman does what they do because it's their responsibility. And let me say to you tonight that as God's children, it's our responsibility to study the Word of God. Uh, it's not just a, a option, it's not just a recommendation, it's a responsibility to be able to, as Paul says here, rightly divide the word of truth. I'll tell you, there's a difference between the Bible and opinions about the Bible. Notice what he says in verse 16, he says, Shun profane and vain babblings. Now, when we use the term profane, we often mean perverted or corrupt. But the term profane simply means not hallowed, not holy not inspired. In other words, the Apostle Paul says you ought to spend your time in the Word of God preeminently above any and everything else. Everything outside of the Word of God, he says, is just common. It's just profane. And he uses the word vain, meaning empty. He uses the word babblings, which means an indiscernible uh, uh, noise. We might use this term. It's a good hillbilly term, racket. Racket, just a bunch of noise. And that's the two categories. He says, over here is the Word of God, inspired, inerrant, infallible, pure and precious, heaven-born and heaven-sent. And everything else at the end of the day is just common. Everything else at the end of the day is just vain. Everything else at the end of the day is just racket. I'll tell you, as a preacher of the Word of God, there's a lot of preaching out there that's nothing but common, empty racket. Because it's not rooted and grounded and founded upon the truth of the Word of God. I'll tell you that if I give you my opinion, I ain't giving you much of anything. Because my opinion can be wrong. In fact, uh, if you ask my wife, more often than not it is. And... uh uh, so my opinion doesn't really count for much. My opinion can be wrong. You can hear my opinion and not really know if you've heard anything. That's what vain means. It's empty. It's weightless. You can hear my opinion and not know if you've heard anything. You can hear my opinion you're hearing something that's common. You can hear my opinion and you might have just heard a bunch of noise. But if you hear the truth of the Word of God, well, then you've heard something substantive. So tonight I want to give you uh, some principles for studying the Word of God. And I have divided them into three categories. I want to give you some spiritual principles for Bible study. Because Bible study is a spiritual activity. It's an exercise of the new man in communion with the truth of the revealed Word of God. It's not merely an academic venture. It's a spiritual venture. And then I want to give you some practical principles of Bible study. Bible study, like anything else, has certain there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. And there are certain things that you ought to hold as guiding tenets in the way you study the word of God. And then before we close, I want to give you some technical principles for Bible study. Uh, In other words, sort of a framework of how you approach the word of God. So first off, notice what Paul says in verse 15. He says, study to show thyself approved unto God. So who is our chief responsibility? What is our chief priority in studying the Word of God? It's that God might be uh, approving of or pleased with our life. Uh, The reason you and I study the Word of God is not merely to pile up facts in our head. The reason we study the Word of God is not merely so we can keep up with other Christians and be able to speak in an informed manner. The reason that we study the Word of God is not even so that we might impart that truth to others, although God certainly has called us as believers to be those that impart truth. But the chief preeminent purpose in studying the Word of God is to please God. You might say, well, preacher, why are you giving such emphasis or why does Paul here give such emphasis? Because that's the singular guiding principle of studying the word of God. If you're studying it for any other reason, it's a lot easier for you to go astray. If your purpose in studying the Bible is to please God and to know him and to understand him, if that is the guiding force of your Bible study, that'll keep you right on track. Uh, it'll keep you from veering off into heresies and veering off even to errors of misplaced emphasis or priority there's a lot of people that are not wrong they're just right in the wrong way uh, they're they're unbalanced a false balance is an abomination to the lord there's a lot of people uh, that they get on uh, they find them a horse and and they ride that thing till it dies uh, to the expense to the detriment of the rest of their spiritual development so i'm saying this if our purpose is to please god we're going to be right we're going, to, we're going to be focused, we're going to be balanced in everything that we do. So that ought to be our focus. As such, how do we do that? Well, let me say a word first off about the prayer of Bible study. Because as we said a moment ago, Bible study is a spiritual endeavor. It is a spiritual activity. It's not like studying any other book in the world. Uh, any other book in the world, you can sit down in any condition, and if you're right, if your mind is correct, if your mind's right, You can study it, but the Word of God is not that way. Uh, You can have your mind can be clear. Your senses can be sharp. uh, You can have all of the uh, sort of uh, accessories of studying the Bible, whether they be commentaries, dictionaries, whatever they might be. You can be completely and fully equipped, but if you're in a wrong condition to study the Word of God, it can be a fruitless endeavor. Studying the Word of God is the communication of the heart and mind of God to the heart and mind of the believer. And it, it must be something that develops out of communion between the new man and the Holy Spirit. Uh, otherwise, we might develop a lot of, of head knowledge, but it won't change us even in the least. So the first thing when you go to study the Word of God, the first activity, the first step ought to be prayer. It ought to be prayer. Uh, think about the fact that we have the author at our, at, at our access at all times. In fact, I go a step further and say that the author resides in every single born-again believer. The Spirit of God literally abides with us and within us at all times to help and lead and guide us in the study of the Word of God. This is what John meant when he said, You have no need that any man teach you. That self-same anointing will teach you. Uh, John is not uh, criticizing the thought of, of teachers but rather he's saying, because in the context of First John, he's talking about special revelation from God. That's what these Gnostics claimed uh, that John was battling, was that they had a special uh, revelation from God that nobody else could have. It. John says, hey, listen, don't worry about them. You have the author of the book living within you. So we ought to pray. And there's plenty of precedent for this in the Word of God. Really, my, my problem here was trying to narrow down which verses to quote because there's just simply so many. The 119th Psalm, of course, is occupied chiefly with the Word of God and the topic of, of God's statutes and commandments. In Psalms 119.12, the psalmist says, Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. Now, what's he doing? He's praying. That's what the Psalms chiefly, preeminently is, is a book of prayer. And he's praying and he's saying, God, I need you to teach me. I could take you to my study at home and show you, I don't know, I quit counting when I got near a thousand commentaries sitting on the shelves. And a lot of them really, really good. And a few of them, if I, if I, it's in my will that you ought to burn them and not give them to any preacher, uh, because there can be some dangerous knowledge even in good books. And, uh, and I'm not against that. I'll tell you this though, the longer I go in ministry, the more I find myself in this book as opposed to any of the other books. And again, I'm not criticizing. I mean, I've got the commentaries and I and there's times that they are a help. But at the end of the day, if you want to know what the book says, talk to the author and ask him to teach you. Now, it's an activity of faith, you understand, because every prayer is an activity of faith. Uh, it, it's us communing with heaven and saying, I believe based upon your promises, God, that you're going to do precisely what you said that you're going to do. And that's what the psalmist is doing. It is a faith activity. It is a spiritual activity. And he begins it by saying, Lord, I need you to teach me. I don't just want to know the language. I don't just want to know the, the events. I don't just want to know the history. I want to know your heart, your mind. In verse 18, he even, uh, in probably more explicit language, he says, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. He says, I need you to teach me. James one five, you could probably quote it with me. But James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. And it shall be given him. When you sit down to seriously study the Bible, the first thing y'all do is y'all pray. You ought all say something to the effect in your own heart's words, but y'all to say, Lord, I don't know. I need you to teach me. I'm here as a student of your word. You are the master. You are the teacher. I'm the pupil. God, I need you to. Feed me. I need you to teach me. So the prayer of Bible study, we ought to seek his wisdom. Let me say a word about the purpose of Bible study. Why do we study the word of God? I wrote it down this way. We ought to read the word of God, study the word of God to be fed and changed. To be fed and to be changed spiritually. So again, studying the word of God is a spiritual endeavor. It's a spiritual activity. We might say it is a spiritual exercise. It's not something we do merely to accrue academic facts or knowledge. It's not even merely something we do to to hone or sharpen our apprehension of spiritual truth. Uh, You could go to uh, any seminary in town and you'd find guys with more degrees on them than a thermometer uh, that don't know a thing about the God that wrote the book that they profess to have devoted their life to. And the reason is because when they approach the word of God, they were they approach it the way they would any academic text. And that it's not, in fact, an academic text. It's the wellspring of, of wisdom. It's the source of divine revelation. But what it is not is merely a book full of cold facts to be memorized. It's more than that. And you can, by the way, you can see this in the Roman Catholic Church. Nobody learns more truths or facts about God, general speaking, than a child in parochial school does. And yet, by and large, the Roman Catholic Church uh, is, is eat up with corruption. It's not change them. They don't read it to be changed. They read it as a matter of culture and they read it as a matter of apprehending facts. So we ought to read it to be fed and changed. Every time you approach the word of God, you ought to be uh, approaching it saying, Lord, I need you to talk to me about my life. I need you to tell me where in my life I need to be closer to you. What in my life needs to be corrected? Peter said it this way. He said, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, He said, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Well, to hunger after the word of God, recognizing it to be nourishment that we so desperately need. Again, we can go back to that 119th Psalm. And what was David's perspective on on the word of God? This was a man that knew the word of God. This was a man that the Holy Ghost used to pin down some of the word of God. And what was his perspective? He said in verse 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And a light unto my path He said, I have sworn and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. Here's the king of Israel saying, I need the word of God to guide me, to direct me, to change me. As long as you are reading the word of God for mere formality, it will remain a formality. If you are if your spiritual life is dead, then it will be a dead book. Do you remember what the Lord said to the woman at the well in John chapter number four? She started talking about religion and various religious principles. And she said, you know, uh, the Jews worship at Jerusalem. Our ancestors say we worship in this mountain. What do you think? And Christ looked at her and said, you know, not what you worship. Salvation is of the Jews. In other words, he looked at her and said, you're trying to have a spiritual conversation, but you're spiritually dead. Your your approach to the matter of religion is completely misguided and misinformed. Her problem was she knew a lot of religious tenets and a lot of religious ideals, at least enough that she felt comfortable talking with a stranger who was a male about these things. So she evidently felt some degree of confidence. The problem is, uh, she, listen, she had got in the Word, but the Word had never got in her. And it wasn't until Christ changed her. So when we read the Word of God, it's not just, well, this is what I do. And I'll tell you, man, it's easy sometimes, especially when you're digesting big portions of the word of God to just tune out and to just sort of just, just get the glassy eyed look and just be reading through and read through four or five pages, not even know what you've read. If that happens to you, stop right there. Stop right there. Have a word of prayer, back up to wherever the last place was you remembered reading and go back and say, Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to dig here until you speak to me. So, the purpose of Bible study. But then, I'd be remiss if I didn't say a word about the person of Bible study. So, what do you mean, preacher? Well, the Bible is a book. It's the divine revelation of the mind and heart of God and the plan of God for the redemption of humanity. But it really is a book that is about a singular individual. And that person is Jesus Christ. Every portion of the word of God can only be rightly divided, rightly understood, rightly applied if it is adjusted into its proper perspective relative to Christ. You've got to know what it is that God's trying to tell you about Christ, no matter what portion of the word of God it is. You can go to creation, you can go to the Old Testament prophets, you can go to the poetic books, and everywhere you go, you'll find that it bears witness to the person of Jesus Christ and reveals something about who He is in the person of God. Christ said to the Pharisees in John 5, 39, He said, search the Scriptures. And and by the way, when He said that, He wasn't talking about the Pauline epistles that weren't pinned down yet. He wasn't talking about the Gospel record that wasn't pinned down yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. He said, Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And he said, They are they which testify of me. A Hebrews writer quoted the psalmist in Hebrews 10 7 about Jesus Christ and said, This was a messianic statement about Christ. Then said I, Lo, I come, talking about Christ. Uh, Christ saying prophetically, I come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Every portion of the word of God bears. Something of a revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll say a word about this before we close when we talk about typology, but uh, let me just, just at the very beginning of it say, y'all look for Christ on every page. Harold Sightler used to say, look for him on every page. And if you come across a page and he ain't there, it said, flip to the next page, you'll find him twice. <laughs> He's always there and I could go through and I've done it in, in, in the past in the pulpit talking about in every single book of the Bible who he is. He's the creator. He's the, the you know, in, in Genesis. He's the Passover lamb in Exodus. He's the serpent on the brazen pole in Numbers. We could go through all of these, but, but suffice it to say that our, our study of the word of God ought to always be Christ centric. It will always be a question when we approach the word of God. What does this tell me about the heart and mind of God as expressed through the person of Christ? That's what Christ did. God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that he what? That he gave his only begotten son. So if the Word of God is the revelation of the mind and heart of God, and there is no more distilled, concentrate expression of God's love towards humanity than the coming of Christ into this world, then doesn't it stand to reason that all through the Word of God we would find things that point to the person of Jesus Christ? And you'll find this to be true as you study through it. Somebody's going to say, what about prophecy, preacher? Well, listen to what uh, the John the Revelator uh, pinned down in Revelation 19.10. He said, I fell at his feet to worship him, talking about an angel, that he fell at this angel's feet to worship the angel. The angel said unto him, see thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, I, by the way, I can think of no, no more uh, common area of, of biblical study that has been more perverted than prophecy, preaching and teaching. And you know why that is? It's because it has been divorced from the person of Jesus Christ. We've been teaching through the book of Daniel in our Sunday school class. And uh, I, I'm not, I do preach on prophecy. I hit on it occasionally. But I, I've never been somebody that just wades in and, and stays in prophecy for great amounts of time. And uh, part of the reason for that, and I'm, and I'm not criticizing preachers that do. I grew up in a church. We used to have prophecy conferences. And, and I'm not saying that there's not a place for that. But sadly, sometimes there can be a carnal fascination with prophecy. Hey, even the lost world wants to know how the world's going to end. And sometimes there can get, people can gain a carnal infatuation with the idea of Bible prophecy that is divorced from the true purpose of prophecy, which is to reveal the person of Jesus Christ in a greater way. He is the spirit of prophecy. And you, you won't understand the book of Daniel. You won't understand the book of Revelation. You won't understand the Old Testament minor prophets and their relation to the day of the Lord. You won't understand any of that except you understand it in relation to who Jesus Christ is. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He, he, he is the bringer of the day of the Lord to humanity. He is the, He's the coming King of the Jews that will be crowned and, and be seated upon David's throne in a millennial kingdom. Until you understand that it's all all about Him. You'll never have a right perspective. Uh, Listen, there's people that that aren't within 200 miles of God that that love Bible prophecy. Listen, some of the slimiest fork tongue TV preachers that haven't read their Bible since the 70s will talk about Bible prophecy. Why do they do that? Because there is a baseline foundational infatuation of humanity with how the world's going to end. I don't say any of that to denigrate Bible prophecy. 30% of your Bible is prophecy. If you're going to throw out premillennialism, you're going to have to cut out 30% of your Bible because none of it will make sense outside of a premillennial understanding of end time events. So I'm not denigrating prophecy, but I'm saying this, we won't understand prophecy right until we get our focus on Jesus Christ. So there are some spiritual principles for Bible study. And then let me give you a few practical principles for Bible study. As with any endeavor in life, it's going to take some practicality to understand the Word of God. Listen to what Paul says. He likens us to a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. So a workman, the reason they're not ashamed is because they have they have carried out their work with certain principles of integrity and excellence and quality, and they've done the job right. When we study the Word of God, it ought to be our desire to do the job right and to be able to say we have we have done right by the truth of the word of God. So I wrote a few of them down. Let me give them to you. First off, it takes confidence to study the word of God. I don't mean confidence in yourself. I mean confidence in this book. You've if you want to understand this book, you've got to believe this book is exactly what God says this book is. I, in other words, I, I in fact, I broke it down a little more. We have to have confidence, number one, in the inspiration of the text. You're never going to understand the Bible if you don't believe it's the Word of God. You say, "Oh, I don't know about that. Oh, I can tell you that. I I, I can show you uh, dusty old books from guys that have been dead a hundred years that nobody cares about their books anymore because they wrote them from a perspective of being a Bible denier. Why would you write a commentary on the Bible and not believe in the Bible? How foolish. How silly that is. I mean, I guess I could believe more readily an atheist trying to discount the Word of God than a theological liberal that doesn't believe in the truth of the Word of God and is trying to write a commentary on it. You know what they wind up doing? Every time they come to a... Di- and this is this is a truth of life, all right? If you're digging a hole and you meet resistance, right? If you're digging a hole and you run into a rock, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to quit digging or you're going to move the rock. You know what theologians that don't believe in the inspiration of the Word of God do? They just quit digging. They just quit digging. They don't go any further. They they don't they don't bend their perspective to the revealed word of God and and dig in and find the truth of what God's trying to say. They hate difficult texts and they dismiss them. This is the reason they deny the literal uh, the uh, literal uh, authorship of the Book of Daniel. It's the reason they deny the Book of Job. It's the reason they deny basically all twelve minor prophets. Because when they come to a difficulty, they have no confidence that these are the very words of God. And so what do they do? They just write it off and say, well, it must have been written at a later date. It can't really be Bible prophecy, whatever it might be. You've got to believe you've got the very word, not just word, but words of God in this book when you approach it. I I, I said it this way in the source of the text. These are God's very words. They're divine. They're perfect. They're just what they ought to be. And if you're going to understand the word of God, you've got to approach it from that perspective. Otherwise, the moment you come up against something you don't understand, you'll close your Bible, turn on the TV, go to something else, do something else. You'll say, well, I guess I can never understand it. You see, when you believe these are the words of God, then you say, well, God wrote that for me, for me. He might have not wrote it to me, and I'll say a word about that here in a second, but he sure enough wrote it for me, and I better take the time to learn what it means. But if you treat it as though it's any other book, well, I'll tell you what would happen to me. If I was reading some old book, I didn't understand a word that I came to, I'd just close it or skip over it or ignore it. We have to believe it's the very words of God. So confidence in the inspiration of the text. That'll lead to confidence in the administration of the text. You say, what do you mean? Well, if the inspiration is the source, that it comes from God. And by the way, to to deny the inspiration of the Word of God. And by the way, by extension, the preservation of the Word of God. Because inspiration is meaningless without preservation, right? I mean, at least if, if I came up to you with a cup of water and you said, well, where'd you get that cup of water? And I said, well, you know, I, I don't know where all it's been. I, I went and poured it out of the tap two years ago. And you said, well, are you sure it's clean? And I said, well, it was when it came out of the tap. Two years ago? Yeah. Or are you sure it's still clean? Well, I don't know. Something might have got in there. Somebody might have put something in it. Who knows what may have happened to it? It was pure when it came out of the tap. I know that. But now I don't know where it's been since then. Drink up. You look at me like I was crazy. So I ain't going to drink that thing. By the same token to say, well, God inspired his word in the originals, but he didn't have enough foresight to preserve it. That's foolish. I mean, you really have to work hard to accept that position. How could he be God and not have foresight enough to know to preserve his word? To deny the inspiration and by extension the preservation of the Word of God is to deny the very uh, revealed, plain-spoken truth of the Word of God. Uh, Paul said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. By the way, can I just say this? When Paul pinned that down, uh, there are some portion of the Word of God, there were no more originals left. There's some portions of the Word of God there ain't never been originals for. He said, what do you mean? Well, what about the tablets that God wrote with His finger on Mount Sinai? And Moses walked down to the foot of the hill and busted them. And then when Moses goes back up, guess what? God puts the pen in Moses' hand and says, I'm going to dictate it to you now, Moses, and you're going to write it down. You know what that is? That's mankind copying down God's Word. And that's what Paul said. Hey, he said all Scripture. What about the portions that Jehudi took out his knife pen and and, and cut up in the book of Jeremiah? Hey, there were only copies left after that. Paul says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Uh, So uh, to to reject that is to reject the plain spoken truth of the Word of God. What that will lead to, if we we have confidence in the inspiration of the text, is confidence in the administration of the text, the substance of it. That what is there belongs there and what is not does not. That what is there belongs there, and that what is not does not. In other words, that this King James Bible has everything in it that is supposed to be there. And that there's nothing in there that ought to be cut out or dismissed or disregarded. That it's exactly what it ought to be. One of my great annoyances was when people try to disregard portions of the Word of God. They'll say, well, it's not significant, or well, uh, that's not really what it meant, or this or that. Who are we to jump in God's chair and to decide? So it'll breed a confidence in the administration of the text, the substance. And then you know what that'll produce? That'll produce a a confidence in the organization of the text. In other words, that what is written is written this way for a reason and that nothing is accidental. We might say confidence in the sense of the text. Uh, You know, one of the things just in my personal Bible study, you don't have to be this way, but I love to find stuff that that to my human reasoning doesn't belong and then find out. Why it belongs. I can have confidence that everything in my Bible is ordered exactly the way it ought to be. And if I come across a portion that I don't understand, I know the deficit is in my lack of understanding, not in the veracity and truth and authenticity of the word of God. You know what that makes me do? I don't know about you, but it don't make me run away from hard texts. It makes me run to them. I don't run away from things that I struggle with. It makes me run to them because I know if I just keep digging, if I just keep praying, if I just keep studying, sooner or later the Holy Ghost is going to make that thing known to me. And I'll have an understanding. And I'm going to tell you I understand everything in this Bible. I'd have to lie to you to tell you that. But I'll tell you this, that everything in there, whether I understand it or not, is exactly how it ought to be. And it belongs there. So, confidence in the Word of God. Number two, we've got to have consistency. you got to read to learn. This book does not work by osmosis. You're pretty smart. Don't get me wrong. I believe you are smart. I don't believe you're smart enough to absorb the truth as it sits on your nightstand. You don't have to get it out and read it, man. That's true with anything. Hey, listen. Uh, Christ said in Matthew 5, 6. Now, I understand he's talking about spiritual principles. But I believe studying the Word of God is a spiritual activity. And he said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. By the way, I don't think that's some kind of miraculous statement. You know what I think he's saying? He's saying those that are hungry eat. Those that are thirsty drink. I still remember riding home and uh, mom and dad would, would say, you know, you want, uh, you know, I, I, it'd be like a Sunday. We never went out to eat. They had money, but they never let us know. <laughs> and, uh, we'd be riding home on a Sunday afternoon and, uh, I'd say, well, are we going to stop and get something to eat? And we ain't going to stop and get nothing. We got baloney at home. Baloney sandwiches. I'd say, well, I'm hungry. And they'd say, I know we got bologna at home. I'd say, well, I don't want bologna. And they'd say, well, I guess you ain't hungry. That still makes me mad. And I do it to my kids, not with bologna because we don't eat that stuff, but they, uh, but you know what they're saying? If you're hungry, you'll eat, you know, spiritually, we're hungry. We'll eat. Can, can I tell you something? And I, and please understand, I don't, this, there's no personal edge to anything I'm about to say, but I just give you some counsel just as your pastor. I, I've had this throughout the years, and, and you know this, and, and any, any church you go to, there'll be people do this. I've had people leave and say, well, I just ain't getting fed. Hey, listen, last I checked, it was only infants that can't feed themselves. Infants can't feed themselves. They got to be fed, right? But all the rest of us, we just assume if we're hungry, guess what we'll do? We'll eat. And there's a great many people that'll say, well, I just wasn't getting fed. Now I'm not saying, listen, there's sadly there are churches out, out there. I understand there are churches out there don't, don't preach no truth. And and I understand that. Don't misunderstand what I know there are occasions, but I've seen a lot of people and not just leave our church, leave leave good churches, other churches that I know they're getting fed. I know that I know their, their preacher preaches the word of God and they'll say, well, I'm just not getting fed. And at the end of the day, really what it is is they ain't hungry you got to read. you got to consistently get in the book. You won't get anything out of the book unless you get in the book. And then I'd say this, number three, context. I'm just going to make this statement. And I ain't going to dwell on it. I'll move on. But context is key when you study the Word of God. You come to something you don't understand, read two chapters before, read two chapters after. Any, listen, if you come to a position... That is divorced from the context of the Word of God. Go back and rethink your position. The Bible's not meant for us to be taken in bits and pieces. It's meant for us to take it in the context of it. More damage is done to the preaching of the Word of God when a text is ripped from the context than any other time. God give us a context for a reason. The context is like a house. You know why you got a house? You got a house for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is to keep you safe. It's a place you can go and lock the door behind you and be in a safe area. Imagine if the only safe place in your house was just your bed. That wouldn't be no good, would it? Instead, it ought to be a thief has to get through several layers before they ever get to you. And that's what context does in the Word of God. When we read the word of God in context, meaning reading, uh, you know, books or reading sections of books or reading it within the the context of chapters before and chapters after, it is a safeguarding activity. It keeps us from falling into error. So context is king in studying the word of God. Then I'd say this number four, uh, the book, the Bible is a composite book. So in other words. There ought not be any single verse doctrines. Or let me just say it this way, there are no single verse doctrines. No single verse doctrines. The Word of God will support the Word of God. You know what the greatest commentary on the Bible is? The Bible. It's greatest. Listen, I've got, I've got shelves full of commentaries. Some of them good, some of them ain't worth the paper they're printed on. But the best commentary I've ever found for the Bible is the Bible. You want to know what a verse uh, means? Go find other places where the phrase is found in the Word of God. Read before it. Read after it. Build upon the truth of the Word of God. That's what Christ did. He said, "Hey, I'm not come to destroy the law. I'm come to fulfill it." And whenever he talked about various spiritual principles, he did, not, he did not tear down the truth of Old Testament revelation, but he built upon it. He said, you know, uh, you say that if a man, uh, you know, uh, hate another man in his heart, uh, then, you know, he's committed murder. He said, I say, if you call a man a fool, you've committed murder. He said, you know, the old, Moses said that uh, if a man, you know, commits adultery with his wife, it's a sin. I say unto you, if a man look upon a woman to lust after, he hath committed adultery already in his heart. He built upon the foundation. Of the truth, the word of God. So the Bible is a composite book. And it is to be taken in a, it is a synthesis, not an analysis. It's not a matter of pushing everything else away and zeroing in on one topic. Instead, it's a matter of taking the comprehensive look of the truth of the Word of God. Great error and most of the deviating cultishism errors that persist and exist to this very day, they come from people disregarding other portions of the Word of God and focusing upon one singular aspect of it, to the damage and destruction of everything else. So the Bible is a composite book. That's why you got to study the whole book. That's why it's good to have a system for how you study the Bible. Not just opening it and, and letting the pages fly and slamming your finger down, but instead saying, man, I'm going to study the book of John. I'm going to study the book of Job. I'm going to study the book of Nehemiah. And I'm going to get in that book and I'm going to start plowing through that book and examining that book. And I'm going to look at what's going on in the history uh, and the rest of the Word of God, what's taking place around it. Why do you think God gave us all these historical books in the Bible? The vast majority of which overlap each other. Listen, you want to understand something? Listen carefully. You want to understand something in one gospel record? Look at the other three gospel records. Uh, You come to something you don't understand in the book of Mark? Go over to Matthew. Go over to Luke. Go over to John. And look at the other occasions when something is mentioned. And if it's not mentioned, start looking for the same time frame, time period. Where was Christ? What was going on in His life, in His ministry around this particular time? You can do the same thing in the Old Testament. Uh, listen, there's a reason God put, first uh, and second kings and first and second chronicles right smack near each other so we could get to them quick. So that when you're reading about the kings of Israel in first kings or second kings, you want to know what's going on? Go over to first second chronicles, read what was going on in the southern tribe of Judah, southern kingdom of Judah at that time. It's a composite thing. And so you say, well, preacher, how could I ever digest all that? Well, that's why you need a system. That's why you need to pick a portion of the Word of God and just start studying it. Start laboring in that particular portion. The greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So there are some practical principles of Bible study. And finally, I'm going to have to move through these quick, but I want to give them to you tonight. I want to give you some technical principles for Bible study. Now, I'm going to give you some big $10 words, and some of these are, are words of my own application here, and then some of them are kind of the mainline uh, you know, usage of, of how I'm going to use these words. But if you'll follow these principles as you study the Word of God, it'll help lead you right and help you understand what God's saying. Because after all, that's what we're wanting to do, right? What we're wanting to do when we study the Bible is be approved unto God. Please Him and learn of So here's a few rules that you can uh, apply. And and I've used this last portion of of, uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 to sort of encapsulate. You know what Paul says? Rightly dividing the word of truth. That tells me this. You can wrongly divide the word of truth. It tells me, by the way, it's wrong to not divide it at all. If, you, if you've if you got to rightly divide the word of truth, and I, this, this has bearing here in just a second. You stick with me. It's all right. We ain't, it ain't even Wednesday. It's like Monday, all right? So don't get nervous. We ain't even anywhere near time to go. But it tells me that if you're going to understand the Bible, it involves a dividing process. It involves compartmentalizing and understanding where each portion of the word of God fits. So here's a few principles. Number one, the first one I'm going to say, I'm going to call it literalism. Literalism. In other words, we ought to be literalists as we read the word of God. The Old Testament prophets would often say, thus saith the Lord. And that was their way of saying this right here, this is what God wants to say. And it does not have to be parsed. And it does not have to be ground up and, and spit out the other side. Just take it for what it says. We as Bible students, we ought to interpret the Bible literally, literally. In other words, it's not to say there is not figurative language in the Bible. Of course, there's figurative language in the Bible. But it's say that as we study the Word of God, we are to take the characters and individuals and events in them as being historical in nature. Uh, in other words, when the Bible says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, you know what that means? That means there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. <laughs> I know that sounds deep. But listen to what the golden rule is of Bible study. This, at least, this is what theologians call it. I, it probably ranks somewhere in a list of important truths. The golden rule of Bible study is this: that when plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. In other words, as you read the Word of God, take literally what's being said. And there will be places in which figurative language will force itself. It will it will reveal to you that what's being said is. Figurative in nature. But there are a great many places where literal language is expressed that people have tried to make it figurative. This is this has gutted eschatology, the study of end-time events. Uh, good men that that otherwise seem to be very sound that have gutted their understanding of the book of Revelation because they've tried to spiritualize all of it and make it all figurative. You know how I believe the book of Revelation is to be taken? Literal and chronological. Uh, the only place where it might... Only place it might not be chronological is chapter 12, the parenthetical passage about the the woman and the serpent and and Michael and the archangel and the war. Uh, uh, But apart from that, and I'm not even convinced that's not chronological, but I see where good men would deviate on that position. Otherwise, take the book of Revelation literal and chronological. And you know what you'll find? You'll find it makes sense. Because guess what? It's not, it's not called the big secret. It's called the revelation. (laughs) It's a revelation of God's plan for end time events. So as you study the word of God, take the word of God literally. And there will be places in which the, the text and the context of the text will, will, will constrain you to a figurative understanding. But the vast majority, the vast majority of the Bible is literal and to be taken literally. So literalism is important. Then I would say this, this is so important. I'm going to call it originalism. Now, the term originalism is, is actually a legal term, and it has to do with constitutional law and constitutional study. As it pertains to constitutional law, it's the idea that we ought to interpret the Constitution according to what it originally meant to the people who penned it. By the way, this isn't a political thing, but, that, but I'm an originalist when it comes to the Constitution. Right. I, I I don't believe there's any pretumbrances of intuitions or whatever garbage it was that they used to legalize abortion in the 70s. I believe that that the founders knew what they were writing. And I believe we ought to interpret it according to what they meant when they pinned it down. Uh, and that's the reason I believe that we ought to be able to own, you know, uh, whatever we want to own in matters of, of uh firearms. Uh, because guess what? People say, well, they'd never allow you to own a bazooka. I think they would have. They just got through fighting a tyrannical government. They did it with muskets, because guess what? That's all anybody had was muskets. <laughs> but either way, originalism as it pertains to constitutional law is the idea of you ought to find out what is originally meant towards the people it was written to. The same thing is true of studying the Bible. Your first goal in studying the Word of God ought to be, as you approach any passage, I'm talking about technically speaking, your first goal ought to be to understand who it was written to, who it was written by, when it was written, why it was written. In other words, I'll give you an example. As you study the Old Testament uh, minor prophets, you'll never understand the minor prophets until, for each respective one, whoever it might be, whether it's the book of Hosea written to the uh, to the to the apostate northern kingdom of of Israel as they were enthralled with with calf worship in in Dan and Gilgal and 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 in uh, Bethel, until you understand that that's who is being spoken to and about, and understand it in that context, you can't make application. You've got to understand what's originally meant before you can make application. This is a basic tenet of, of life, right? If I give instructions to my, to my child, if I tell Lawrence, you need to go tell your brother this, it's imperative that he understand what I'm first instructing him before he'll know how to express that to his little brother. Well, in the same way as you study the Word of God, you ought to seek to understand what's being said to whoever it was written to. Because listen, all the Bible's written for us, It's not all written to us. So originalism, you ought to seek to understand who is it being written to. You won't understand the book of Jonah or excuse me, the book of Nahum, unless you understand it's written to the city of Nineveh and to the Assyrians. You can make all kinds of applications after you understand that, because guess what? God is today who he's always been. And what he was doing in their lives and, and what his nature is, is unchanging. He's the Lord God of Israel. He changes not, but you can't understand those things until you understand first what he was saying to those peoples, because that's who he was speaking directly to. So there's originalism and that leads me really to a third one. And I listen, I don't, we, we'd have to have hours, so I'm going to have to move through it quick, but it's dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a system. I don't want to say this right. I don't want to merely relegate it to a system of Bible study because that's not what it is. Uh, the, the covenant theologians claim that dispensationalism is just a way of looking at the word of God. But that's not true. Dispensationalism is, in fact, how the word of God is. Uh, dispensationalism is basically this idea that God has dealt with humanity in different ways in different ages that he would reveal truth to humanity and he would expect humanity to live and respond in light of whatever that truth is. So, for instance, there's things you and I know about God today and we're held accountable to about God today that in Abraham's day they didn't know anything about. And God didn't hold Abraham accountable to those things that were not revealed yet unto him. But you better believe God holds us accountable to those things to this very day because we know more because we have a whole Bible. Uh, so God has, through different dispensations... Gave revelation, gave truth. There are seven dispensations in the word of God. Uh, There was the uh, dispensation of innocence. That was before the fall in the garden. Dispensation of conscience. That went from Adam to Noah. The dispensation of government, because remember, God instituted human government to Noah, right? He gave him the power of the sword. And he said to Noah, said, uh, you know, uh, if, if man sheds blood, then by man his blood will be shed. He instituted human government capital punishment. So the dispensation of government was from Noah to Babel. That's how God dealt with humanity. After the Tower of Babel, God spoke to Abraham and he gave him a promise. And you had the dispensation of promise that went all the way from Abraham down to Moses. Then God spoke again. He gave the law. The dispensational law took place on Mount Sinai in Moses' life. And that extended all the way from Moses' life all the way down to Christ. When Christ died on the cross of Calvary, we entered into a new dispensation. It's the dispensation of grace. We're not asked as Gentiles or even Jews today are not asked to keep the Old Testament law. Uh, We're living in this dispensation of grace. And then there'll be another one. After Christ comes back, sets up his throne, there'll be the dispensation of the millennial kingdom. You'll only understand the Bible when you understand it within the context of those periods. There are certain things that are not written to you or to me. All things are written for us, but not all things are written to us. Uh, This is the only way to rightly understand the, the, the institution of the church in the New Testament. Because the church don't function anything like Israel functioned. So if, if what God told to Israel was meant for everybody, then why wasn't the church administrated the way that Israel was administrated? See, it's just common sense. It's just common sense. So not all the Bible is written to us. There are three people groups that God recognizes in the world, and they're listed for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 32, Paul says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. So and you ain't talking about charismatics. Somebody say amen right there. That wasn't what church of God meant back then. Amen. Uh, so in other words, that's all people in the world fall into one of those three categories. There's the Jews, meaning unregenerate Jews, people that don't know the Lord, but they're Jewish by ethnicity. Uh, there are Gentiles as people that don't know the Lord, but uh, are not Jewish. Uh, by birth or by ethnicity, and then there's the church of, of God. That's those of us born again into the kingdom of God, part of uh, the dispensation of grace, whether Jews or Gentiles. Christ has broken down the middle wall of partition. We're all seen the same in the eyes of God. So not all the Bible consequently is written to us. You find this, by the way, and I've run out of time 20 minutes ago, but you, you find this very, very explicitly in the book of Ephesians. Uh, and, and it's funny because it seems like everywhere the Calvinists get it wrong. This is they get it wrong as it relates to dispensationalism. Uh, Calvinists reject dispensationalism. They believe in what they call covenant theology. Now there are covenants that God makes through the Old Testament, but what they believe is that every time man broke a covenant with God, God just scooted those people out of the way and put somebody new into the covenant. And that's the reason, by the way, Reformed theology and covenant theology tends to be anti-Semitic in nature because they believe God's cast off the Jewish people. God's not going to keep those promises to the Jewish people if the church has displaced the Jews in the economy of God. That's not what the Bible says, not what Paul said. He said, hey, us, us wild olive branches shouldn't boast against the natural olive branches. Uh, so there's nothing biblical about that system. But in Ephesians chapter 1, which is a place Calvinists love to run to, you know what you'll find? You'll find language like this. Us and ye and them. Paul, all through Ephesians chapter number 1, he talks about what God has done in us. Now, Paul was a Jew. And he was talking about his fellow, fellow Jewish believers and what God had done for the Jewish nation. And then he would say, ye also... And he was talking to Gentiles of the church at Ephesus. And so you'll find this very stark distinction, this this dividing line in Paul's language, where he's talking about us and y'all. That's a good southern word. Us and y'all. He's talking about Jews. He's talking about Gentiles and God's distinct plan for each people group. Now, not all the Bible is written to us, but listen... I'm not a hyper-dispensationalist. I'm not going to let anybody fence me out of any book of the Bible. I'm not going to let anybody tell me that just because it was not written to me that there's nothing for me. Because the Bible is clear that all the Bible, though not written to us, is written for us. In fact, as it relates to this dispensation of grace, Paul says it distinctly. First Corinthians 10.11, he says, talking about the children of Israel and their wanderings, he said, now these things happen unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. So every portion of the Word of God contains rich, rich truth for us as believers. Let me give you two more, and I'm just going to mention them and close. Uh, Another one, I'm going to call it residualism. Uh, A way you'll hear it often called is the rule of first mention. So when something's presented in the Word of God the first time, it has certain characteristics that it will bear throughout the remainder of the Word of God, unless there's some great dispensational shift that necessitates a change. give you an example. First time that animals are killed. Uh, that blood is shed in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3 when man has sinned and man has to stand whole before God. How's He going to do that? Well, God takes those animals and slays them and takes those bloody skins and puts them over Adam and Eve. And now they can stand in the presence of God. So shed blood, the first time it's presented in the Word of God, it's covering sin and it's allowing entrance into the presence of God. And that will maintain all the way through. Uh, There's a great shift, thank the Lord, that takes place at Calvary because it's no longer animal blood. Now it's the blood of the Lamb of God. But you'll find that those characteristics so re- residualism, the law of first mention. And then finally, and I'm done tonight, symbolism. Symbolism. We use this term a lot, or I do, uh, typology. Typology. But there are pictures in the Word of God. Uh, the Bible term in uh, used in Hebrews uh, chapter number 9, chapter number 10 is shadow and pattern. Uh, Paul said the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make the comers there too perfect. So in the Old Testament, there are certain figures and events that though literal and though historical, they also bear a prophetic implication to some person or event in the future. You remember Christ made this statement. He said there'd be no no sign given to that generation, uh, the generation in which he lived and ministered and walked and was crucified, he said there be no sign given unto him except the sign of the prophet Jonas. He said, for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall all the Son of Man also be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So in other words, he he validates that Jonah was a real historical, literal figure that spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale, but he said that also foreshadowed uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus His crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. You could go to Galatians chapter number 4 and see where Paul talks about uh, Hagar and Sarah and Isaac and Ishmael in the Old Testament. How they represented the covenant of law and the covenant of grace or the dispensation of law and the dispensation of grace. But suffice it to say there are certain events in the Old Testament that are shadows that point forward. Now, you don't ever uh, take measurements from a shadow, right? You don't if you went to a tailor and you was having a suit made or ladies, if you were having a dress made and you walked into your tailor's office and you were in the place where they were going to measure you and there was a uh, the sunshine was coming in, your shadow was on the floor. You wouldn't say just measure the shadow. Right. Because the shadow doesn't give you a perfect representation. It gives you a, a a vague picture, but it don't give you a perfect representation. So you don't take measurements from the shadow. Take measurements from the substance. In other words, in the New Testament, we don't formulate doctrine based upon Old Testament pictures and types and shadows. But what they do is they validate and confirm and 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 certify certain New Testament truths and doctrines that are presented to us plainly. Boy, I've got so much more, but we, we've got to close. Uh, let's go ahead and bow together. And yeah, we'll have an altar call. Why are you going to have church and not have an altar call? Miss Connie, come to the piano. Father, bless this invitation. Lord, may whatever work you might have done in our hearts. Uh, May we be obedient. May Christ be magnified. We ask it in his precious name.